Hello and welcome to the Mick Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project-to-product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with a Flow Framework. Today, I'm joined by someone who's recognized as one of the world's foremost authorities on lean agile best practices. It is none other than the author, entrepreneur, and co-founder and chief methodologist at Scaled Agile, Dean Leffingwell. I have personally applied Dean's ideas to the way I build and manage software delivery throughout my entire career, and I find his contributions to the industry to be invaluable. Most recently, I've been very impressed with the work that Dean and the Safe Framework team have done around Safe 5.0, as it provides organizations with key blueprints needed to shift from project to product at scale. If you enjoyed this discussion, I'd encourage you to sign up for the upcoming virtual European Safe Summit on the 10th and 11th of June, which is run by Scaled Agile, and where I'm honored to be a keynote speaker. So with that, let's learn more about succeeding with software at scale from Dean himself. Welcome, everyone. I am so thrilled to have here with me today, Dean Leffingwell. I've followed Dean my entire career. When I first got into software, Gail Murphy introduced me in a 100-level course. She introduced us to a tool called RecPro, which I got to actually use, and, and it made me realize that software maybe was not as invisible as I thought, as she was teaching us how real-world, large-scale requirements work. I then followed the amazing work that he did at, at Rational, because I think some people know that I'm actually a fan of the Rational Unified process, even though I saw many organizations butcher its deployments. I thought there were some amazing ideas there that we're now just recreating as product value streams and as the end-to-end traceability and visibility for those sorts of things. So I think there are a lot of historical guides for me personally there, and I think for the industry as a whole. Then, of course, Dean became chief methodologist at Rally Software, where he created one of the, well, maybe even the first enterprise-grade, large-scale, portfolio-level agile tool out there with Rally. He's author of the Agile Requirements book, Software Agility, Managing Agile Requirements, as well as the, the Safe Reference Guide, which I still have to say, Dean, is I think one of the most dense, beautiful, and potentially underappreciated books that I've read cover to cover because there's so much gold in here in terms of the art and the practice of software delivery. I think most recently, the latest inspirations have come from what Dean and the framework team have done with Safe 5.0, because I think the, the way that they've encompassed product thinking and customer centricity, design thinking, and so on, really helps everyone move forward in this direction of innovation. So with that, welcome, Dean. Well, thanks, Mick. Thanks for having me. So can you please just give us a summary of what's in 5.0, why it's key, why, to me, I think it's a very major version update of the framework, and why you're excited about it? It's clearly a major release. It's 5.0 is an upgrade, so we have major and minor releases. We need to bring our constituents along, Safe Program Consultants. They teach the courses associated with Safe, so we obviously want them competent in the latest version. So in the case of 5.0, in order to teach a 5.0 course, you need to be 5.0 certified. So that's what we mean by a major release. That means that our practitioners, the people that do the work and do the training, need to know the latest and greatest. 5.0 started, of course, with 0.8. It's been a continuous evolution. This is actually the seventh or eighth release of the framework. As you know, I'm a huge fan of whatever works. I'm probably one of the most practical methodologists. If you can even call me that, you'll ever find. And if it works and we can figure out how to fit it into SAFE, it's going to go in there. About a year and a half or two years ago, the pressure started to move from just technical agility, if you will, not as if we've mastered that and everybody's great at it, but let's just say you get good at it and we see people that are good at it and they're going, well, where's really the impact on our business? 
Are we increasing market share? Are our marketing teams along for the ride? What do the sales teams think about the fact that now you want to have a you know release every month and their SLS for their customer, their service level agreement says every year you're going to buy an upgrade. So that's really business agility. And we were told loud and clearly by our key constituents and customers that yes, safe is great and technical agility is awesome and we can't do business agility without it. But if we don't have business agility, also, we're still not going to meet our mission. So that comes in a number of dimensions, areas that weren't particularly technical in nature. Continuous learning culture. I personally think I know you're, you're a fan of Carlotta's work. You showed me that work. And she talked about the various stages of technology development and the management paradigms that go with it. And if you think about something like mass production, you think about Taylorism and the, the manufacturing engineer is the smartest guy and he told everybody else what to do. Well, I think the prevailing paradigm for the next decade is going to be continuous learning. So continuous learning culture is an example of things that we've integrated into SAFE that's not a technical practice, it's a cultural practice and things that we didn't have before. Also, the ability to measure how you're doing as more and larger enterprises adopt SAFE, especially those that didn't start early, they want to know how they're doing. Are they meeting their benchmarks for adoption? Are their outcomes improving? Are the KPIs different? So this need for business agility was expressed clearly. So we extended the framework to do that through a couple of areas, the organizational agility competency, the continuous learning culture competency, the ability to measure and grow. In the center of all of that, however, is I think the thing, honestly, that I'm most pleased about, which is I've been a fan of design thinking for at least five years, maybe more, I don't know exactly. And there's another great knowledge pool about who your customer is and how you come to understand them. And that's one of the things that we, in, in your book, Nick, Project to Product, I asked the question of the teams that I'm training, who's the customer for a project? And they kind of scratch their head. So how do you do an empathy interview for a persona that's a customer that you don't even know exists? It's just kind of nonsensical. So the addition of customer centricity and design thinking and tools around that, simple things like empathy mapping, personas, story mapping, Jeff Patton's work is great. I mean, story mapping relates the job that a developer does to the job to be done that the user does. So incorporating that for me is, I'm relieved <laughs> that we've managed to kind of incorporate that in a way that makes sense. And of course, if you're doing business agility and you don't understand the customer's journey and you don't really understand your customer, and you're not really solving the user's problem, you're not going to achieve business agility anyway. So that kind of aggregates together in what we released as safe version 5.0 just recently. Yeah, and I think that's really what got me excited about it as well, right, is that we're seeing, and I, th I think we're seeing this as an industry-wide move, this does relate to Carlo's work and on the fact that these organizations need to get through the turning point, need to become software innovators, but that for business agility, there needs to be a new way of thinking. And I think, you know, you and I have both been shocked by this fact that every time you ask your framework team, I've asked countless IT leaders is, who is your customer? Can you identify the customer for, for each product value stream? And of course they can't because with this product structure that's been completely insulated and isolated away. So there's no direct line from what the teams working on the agile release trains on the backlogs are back to the business. And so that just makes to cite the three ways of DevOps of flow feedback and continuing learning, it makes that continuing learning piece impossible. So many of the practitioners in a large shop or somebody building big systems deliver solutions to internal customers. And it's not natural to wake up and think about that and say, well, my customer for this is the person that's processing shop floor orders. 
it's true that they know they exist, but do we apply customer centricity to design thinking to that person? Or is this always about this external person, you know, this patient walking through a hospital or somebody logging into a website? So I don't know what the percentage is, but most people develop things that serve other systems, which are also customers of your system, or people that are internal, not just the external ones. So I like the way that you've described the project to product move. And this is also supported by a team topologies, you know, Skelton and Pay's work, because they're going, you've got a platform, who's your customer? Oh, it's a developer. Now, these shouldn't be brilliant insights, but we know we're solution providers. We love the technologies. We go down and dirty and, oh, yeah, somebody's going to use my API. I'm pretty sure because it's so cool. Well, I think that the contemporary view is now evolving to say, wow, I don't care if they're internal or external. There's a person there. And I need to know them and I need to understand their pains. I need to have empathy with them. I need to understand their jobs to be done. So I think recentering on that customer, it's not always the guy logging into a website. That's kind of the trivial case. It's somebody about to do an upgrade for a big SAP system, and you're building the tools to support that. Well, that your user, in that case, your customer is a developer, and their customer is somebody using SAP to do purchase order processing. So that whole chain of understanding the customers, I think, is well supported by your book. And by the way, thank you for stealing the title of my next book, by the way, and totally destroying my plans in that area. <laughs> but yeah, I think in Safe 5.0, knowing there's a real person Sometimes that's a system. So sometimes it's a little more abstract than that. And understanding their needs is a key part of application development. And maybe we lose that as we get bigger, but we can't afford to lose it for very long. Now, you and I thought this was clear, right? That you had different types of customers. It's actually one thing that I've noticed from the many meetings since publishing Project to Product over a year ago is that there's an over-focus. And again, I kind of wish I spent more time going through this in the book, there's an over-focus and thinking that customers, that value streams are only external. Now, you've got internal ones. Large organizations, they could have more software being produced for internal customers than external ones, right? Your developers are a customer of your tools, your value stream network, your methodologies, your processes, your training, and so on. So this is such a key thing is that I think this is what I really like about 5.0. Everything there actually applies to the internal customers. One of the main questions I ask is, okay, so it's internal shared service, it's a data pipeline, it's an API. What's the release chain? What's the value stream? Where's the backlog? Do they have a roadmap? It's the exact same concepts apply. And it is amazing to me how often that's an eye-opening or mind-opening question is that, oh, wow, those things are first-class value streams, right? Those are our internal products. That is the way tech companies think about their developer tools. That is the way a car manufacturer thinks about the plant. Those are actually maybe even our most important products because they make every one of our developers productive or they make the business applications productive because they have a common view of a customer rather than every single business application duplicating the logic and the data storage and all the fun that entails. One of the more kind of advanced topics in our world, as you can probably understand, is value streams. And they're not like the exit path on an airplane when the lights go out. They're there, but you can't really see them. And SAFE supports development value streams. That's what we do. We help IT practitioners and developers and other architects and technical people build better systems. But guess what? Most of those systems are used by operational value streams that monetize in some way or another. So Mm -hmm. the discrimination between development and operational value streams isn't clear until you make it. When you make it, You then ask yourself a question, who's the customer for my SAP system? Who's the customer for this little actuarial table I built in Excel, right, that's being served? So I think the value stream thinking is is another good hook for that because you're forced to ask the question, how does the enterprise make its money or deliver its value, and how do I help those people do that? 
So development streams actually only exist for a purpose, and it's to make systems that help the operational value streams more effective and more efficient. So with 5.0, I think we're clear about that. They've been in since 4.0, but when you come to business agility, and we added the competence around organizational agility, we were compelled to call that out much more clearly. So that if you're supporting an operational value stream, who are the systems? Who are your customers? And oh, by the way, what other support do you need internally to make your solution support that operational value stream? That could be security or, or additional help from ops or customer support, right? That's going to be necessary to help those users. And it's interesting that you mentioned that, Dean, because I actually, having read and studied 4.0, 4.5 and the early versions, I actually thought this all was clear on value stream thinking, this kind of thinking in 4.0. So, and that's a lot, a lot of the, the basis and some of the ways of augmenting that with measuring flow and so on, of putting in business results for internal product value streams like APIs. Well, guess what? You just count adoption of the API. That is a great way of measuring outcomes. That's what, thankfully, we're starting to see customers do. But... I think the, these things are now first class. I'm now, again, understanding how important these kinds of taxonomies are because the fact that you've got design thinking right in the middle there actually does, and customer centricity, actually does make people think, well, you know, if we really want a great customer experience, maybe we can't have 18 different views of the customers as they flow through our different web properties. But what was really eye-opening to me hearing you talk at the Safe Summit and just seeing how these things are being applied and misapplied is that, while that was there in, in 4.0, the business people were having trouble and organiza just organizational structures were having trouble wrapping their heads around it. So I think the blueprint for where they need to go was, was there, but the organizational structure, the way that intakes of work happen still was not. So for me, the biggest aha moment you know, from conversations with you from the past year is what you introduced to me with, with Cotter's second operating system. Because I think like you, I've just been bashing my head against this problem of yeah. the fact that it doesn't seem that complex to shift to the structure that Safe provides you with, to measure flow, to understand your external, your internal, and your developer-centric value streams. But somehow the structure that's in the organizations today doesn't support that. You and I are both pragmatists. So we don't want to wait until there's been a four-year-long reorg that's now perfectly horizontal or whatever. The, the you know. 165,000 people at wherever HP or whatever adopt holacracy. I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> yeah. in, my, in my lifetime. So that's an interesting idea, but it doesn't really apply to our current case. It doesn't. And so what you said to me was Cotter's second operating system and the way that we're actually leveraging that in SAFE can catalyze the shift without requiring a reorg tomorrow, right? And this is not, you, you clearly safe 5.0, you want to make a fundamental shift in the way that the, the business learns and plans work and the workflows and, and the feedback loop from that. But can you just tell us around that? Because I really do think, and I've run this by many customers myself, there's a key thing here that's safe as a catalyst for. Well, uh about the same time, I, I don't remember exactly as I was finding your book, Cotter's Accelerate book came out. And I can't say I read all of his stuff, but I mostly do. And this was a big shift from the normal kind of OCM pattern and leading change to the problem of the organizational structures. And he showed that picture and I borrowed it, frankly, because it's brilliant of a hierarchy and how difficult it was for hierarchy to operate like the network that was formed. I see behind you, there's lots of people there. You're probably a pretty sharp little network. When you double or triple or quadruple your size, the tendency is going to be to add the structure you need to survive. 
recruiting and hiring and comporting with the laws of the land and making sure that you're in the right facility and you've got the cash flow and you've got the you've got the right funding model. All of those things don't come out of the network side. So when I put your book juxtaposed to him and I said project to product and I looked at the network operating system on the left of his view and I looked at the hierarchy on the right, what's the dominant way to get things done on the right, the hierarchy? It's a project. That's what we did. So to me, it was like two different views of the same problem. So the aha light went on for me is that, number one, it's not clear to me that you should tear those hierarchies down because they do lots of things. My expense reports need to be approved. We have a budget for this year. This is not an arguable construct. And in the larger enterprise, they exist and they have served us well. And I think Cotter called out one of the greatest inventions of the 20th century. Well, it's 21st century now and it's time to move on. So I saw this, what leaped out of those two books in my reading after reflection, wow, this is the same problem from two different perspectives. Mick is basically saying we have to move from this project mentality to flow. And flow means we want to dedicate people on a long life basis to a product thinking. It doesn't happen on the hierarchy side. The hierarchy is we need to talk about what we're, how we're going to react to the coronavirus, how we're going to manage our expenses. The flow side says, I just want to build a better solution. So that to me rang true. And it reflected also, I think, some of the, the major challenges people have moving to Agile, which is it's very egalitarian. Let's just say in a cultural standpoint, if my team doesn't argue with me, there's something wrong. And if a new dev comes on and they're sharp, and maybe the, I remember one young person that was a really good modeler, and he went into a crack team that couldn't model worth a hoot, he was a hero because he could express in whiteboard UML-like models of their solution, and they would go, oh, that's it, because they couldn't see that. So that part is tougher for a hierarchy because your rank has value. In Agile, it's really egalitarian, and frankly, your ability to help has the value pile. So the value propositions are different. So we express that in SAFE and saying, look, you need a network operating system. And I said, in hindsight, using Cotter's words and your view, well, that's what we've been doing all along. We've been going in these large enterprises that can't get stuff out the door, that don't have an organized backlog, that, that everything's a project, everything's an emergency. If teams are multiplexed to the 10th degree. They're multiplexed to the point where absolutely nothing new happens. I remember my, one of my first rollouts after a few iterations, nobody got anything done. And when we looked at it, it was because nobody worked on the project. <laughs> they all worked on whatever leftovers they had from a previous life. So I think the dual operating system is a good frame. Now, is that less complicated than a single one? No. But guess what? We're solving the most difficult problems that industry today faces. There's 100,000 companies that if they don't make the transformation to digital are going to be waxed. We're all going to be working for Zuckerberg if we're not careful here in another decade. And I don't want to do that. So I think our job is to help companies who did not start with 100% agile DNA, who have big legacy systems, who need to innovate both at the edge with their platforms and also at the core and thinking, well, we need to move this whole thing to the cloud and use Azure DevOps or whatever your tool of choice is to make your development go more quickly. So it's a good expression, I think, and helped me. I was in Japan a couple of weeks ago and they get hierarchy for sure. And when you say this exists and it's real, but it's not efficient for this other thing we need to do, then they start nodding their heads and they go, yeah, you're right. Let's talk about that other thing. And then all of a sudden we're talking about safe. We're talking about value streams. We're talking about agile release streams. We're talking about teams of agile teams and you've got the hook. But what they envision 
is, oh, these boxes go away, my job goes away, and everything is this weird egalitarian thing where agile hippies rule the day and code whatever they need. That's not the vision of agile. That's not scaled agile. And it's not really, it's not real agile either. Yeah, and this is, I think we have the same mission, right? We want those 100,000 companies that the vast majority still hopefully around 80%, but getting smaller each day of the economy to thrive, right? And I I think think it's important. I mean, you and I think it's important for big time macroeconomic reasons. I don't think having 30 companies 20 years from now is going to be healthy for our society. No, exactly. And I think there are people within those companies who want to make these changes, but I've seen, I think, what you've seen, which is these wholesale changes, changes like, let's make a holacracy, let's, let's make the whole organization agile. I think you and I have been both entrepreneurs, we've helped structure and build organizations, and I think we know from experience it doesn't work at these scales. There's a reason. And I think this is the really neat thing that, that you pointed out in Cotter's work that, that I then read was that there's a reason those hierarchies exist, right? People need their salaries, their pensions, their healthcare plans, and, and all the other things that come from managing that many people effectively, those HR structures. But we can't, so shift into a holacracy, even though it's been tried at modest scales, right? Whether it's Zappos or, or GitHub, it's failed. And interesting, actually devolves into very political structures that are not egalitarian, right? That's a whole other body of work. But I think the the interesting thing here is that you're providing an incremental path for organizations today to take steps to business agility rather than thinking that they have to be reborn as a digital native. And I'm absolutely seeing this danger of people thinking that, no, let's, let's start from fresh. Let's go back to Greenfields. Let's resurrect our business as a whole set of two pizza teams, right? Which can't possibly work when you've got existing demands, customers, markets, equipment. And business. lines of legacy code, be it in yeah. a vehicle or be it in a back office IT system. Yeah, exactly. So if, if we don't provide organizations with a path through that, right, if you don't provide today's leaders, today's teams, and today's organizational structures with a path to organizational agility, a roadmap, I think as, as I'm a big fan of the safe roadmap as, as a concrete set of steps that you can do, the implementation roadmap to do this, then again, they're going to continue down the current trajectory, and the current trajectory is, is not viable for the, the health of the world economy. So it's a, it's a huge risk, and well, as I just said, it's a macroeconomic risk, and we take it seriously. So part of our charter, part of our mission, now we're both commercial companies. I've never believed that you had to be a philanthropist to solve problems. I mean, you can solve problems by selling products that really help people do a better job. So we're commercial companies, but we share that mission. And we share that customer base. We want them to be successful. Not that safe and your methods and tools aren't used in some of the big time fang companies, the Facebooks, et cetera. We know that they actually do. But in general, it's that 100,000 enterprises that didn't start out with pure DNA, or maybe they had agile DNA. Maybe, you know, Nokia was a very strong technical company for sure. And you know those people, they had good software teams, but they weren't able to make the transformation quickly enough as the market changed. Yeah, and not to mention the other the other side of this is that the tech giants, the effective ones, they actually have these structures as well. It's just that they've made these two operating systems work together. The one that's all based around the customer, around flow and the flow of value, and the one that's needed to keep a large, often multinational company running and its, its staff happy and productive and, and growing. So can you tell us a little bit about why you see these things failing? Why are organizations having trouble adopting this thing. And maybe if we can just start, because again, I think that especially for the last few months, I've been seeing this desire to, again, scorch the ground and re-implement things with 
DevOps, with two pizza teams, and so on, without and. The interesting thing that I've seen from that, Dean, and this is, uh, this is what I'd, I'd like us to dig into, it's not something we've had a chance to talk about yet, is I actually feel like anytime that I see that happen, it isolates the business. It basically creates a IT for IT. We're creating a lean stuff. And if Eric Ries work, we've applied it all along and Steve Blank as well, but it creates this basically bubble of the new set of four or 10 pizza teams who are working the new way that is actually isolated from the business there's the hard problem of how work and take comes in, how you map from potentially requirements for mixed physical software systems or other complexities, highly regulated systems as these large organizations have into agile backlogs and release strains. So I think there is this gut reaction. I'm seeing like we need to start over to become like a tech company, not realizing that Amazon actually has these hierarchical structures above their two pizza teams, product value streams, and then these basically portfolio program levels. Yeah, awesome. They're all in place. Awesome product managers as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So these, these principles are actually all in play there, but I feel like there's been this trend of a knee-jerk reaction. It's like, oh, let's start over and be like a startup. Everybody wants a simple answer to really hard problems. I mean, I do too. I always want to find this word Cunningham. I think it was the simplest thing that can possibly work. And we wouldn't support dual operating systems if you didn't need them both. But I'm reminded this that DevOps really triggers the thought. Number one, it's integral to the value stream. So it's just part of SAFE. But I, I think it reminds me of when we started SAFE. So I, I went down and dirty kind of post-RUP. I was independent. I could do whatever I wanted in terms of methods and practices. And I discovered extreme programming first. I hadn't even discovered Scrum yet. I didn't really, honestly, didn't yet have an appreciation for Scrum. I have one now because I've used it over time. And when I went into these larger enterprises in 2005 and 2006, RUP was too big, iterations were too long, people were using inception for requirements, you know, an elaboration for design, you know, the whole pattern. So I didn't want to do that anymore. So I worked in some really small environments, literally on, you know, two pizza teams or maybe four or five pizzas, a couple teams together in, in the room. And the first thing I did is we just went down and dirty. We threw out everything. We threw out the notion of architecture, we threw out PMO governance, and we went down and dirty and started that in the large enterprise. But it's only eight to 10 weeks later where you discover, wow, you've thrown out babies, bathwater, bathtubs, the entire bathroom here. And what happens is you start to replace autonomous with autonomy, okay? Or vice versa, you start to replace autonomy with autonomous and you create autonomous, super powerful, really fast, localized, locally optimizing teams that can create one thing well. Well, you kind of see the same thing in DevOps right now. It's like, well, if I just did DevOps well and brought the ops teams to bear and we provide autonomy to the DevOps teams, they would be fine. Well, like you said, Amazon has great product managers. They have great architectural infrastructure. They have great strategies around evolving their technological platform. So it simply doesn't work to take a component level view and say everything is a component of the same type. They're all same, and we'll just cookie cutter them out. And by good Joe, they'll figure out a way to build a great MRI system. It doesn't work that way. You've got to have strategy, in particular, a certain central properties of centralization, right? We've got to pick a strategy and go. We can't have six teams think they're doing single sign-on differently, even if they use the same protocol, anymore than we can ask 60 teams whether or not we should be in the MRI business. So we have to marry the autonomy we want to grant with the guidance and governance that puts the business in the right place at the right time. And that's why, why I say that I like to think of my team, we have autonomy. We're the framework team. We can do a lot of stuff, but we are not autonomous. 
everything we do impacts other people and it impacts the way we do coursework, it impacts our partners, it impacts the enterprise. What we do affects our P&L. So autonomy, yes. Autonomous, no. And that's a subtle distinction and it's not a trivial one to make, but it's absolutely critical to understanding. We want largely, right? We want our teams to have autonomy, but they are not autonomous. They have to operate within a system that works to the larger end. Yeah. And I think it's interesting for me, it was actually extreme programming as well. Can that spoke 99, our team at Zero Spark and Park embraced it 100%. I was working that way for two years. And it wasn't until we started working within a much larger structure of Eclipse itself, the entire development environment from IBM Rational at that point in time and Object Technologies International, that we realized the additional layers that needed to happen on top of that for us to effectively manage what back then was a 60 million line source base. It was all open source. But we recreated at that point structures that that are effectively identical with only slightly different names, probably 30% different terminology that we've gotten safe 5.0. In the way that we worked and managed that larger code base, fully in open source and with a level of effectiveness that we were seeing there at the time. So I guess what I'm seeing people doing is now reliving that journey that's been 20 years or 21 at this point. And the frustration for me is that they just don't have the time. So if you're going to now go back to kind of the benefits of that free-for-all and the full autonomy of, of XP, and again, amazing work that's being recreated by consultants all over the place now, you're missing that entire journey that we've all been on over the last two decades of how to effectively scale that and, again, connect it to the business where you've got sophisticated lines of business, sophisticated customers, markets, and, of course, these massive legacies of, of internal IT systems and products. So how do we stop people from reinventing this wheel? Because what I'm seeing happen all over is, and it's fun, it's, so I, I want to be clear, it's fun to reinvent the wheel. I like reinventing the wheel. I used to love writing issue trackers. It's fun to rewrite tools like Jira or Azure DevOps as a developer. It's fun to recreate agile frameworks if you're not focused on delivering value to your business at that point in time and you've got some latitude. But I've definitely seen now just a year after year of trying to recreate something that gets us to Agile circa 2005 within a large organization, a large government institution that's providing citizen services or safety to a nation. And I just don't think we can afford this right now where we've got other parts of the industry or other nations who are now moving much more quickly. I think it's just too late. It reminds me of a couple of things. A few years ago, I was in a bank that got rolled up into another bank. And I met their Agile working group and they were really sharp and they had developed for that bank, I won't name the bank, their own Agile way of working, a skilled Agile way of working. And it was honestly pretty good. And we started looking at it. We said, well, how are you going to maintain this? Well, we're going to evolve it. Well, who's going to do the training? How are you going to roll this out? And they started talking about, well, you know, Agile doesn't really have much treatment for intentionality of architecture. So we've got a module for that. I said, yeah, we've had to address that too. So I'm sitting here kind of on with SAFE in my background, in my back pocket, talking to these people that are honestly doing a fantastic job of taking this bank down a primrose path to a sole, custom, proprietary, invented, scaled Agile model that I think technically was fine. You might argue nuances or whatever. Everybody argues those points. I mean, what developer doesn't think their code is better than somebody else? But how there was no way in that industry or in that bank to replicate across what then became to roll up 50, 60,000 different people. And when I looked at their executive management, they said, well, we really need a standard here. We need a common taxonomy. We can't call that a story. 
a user story, a backlog item, or a work item. You got to know what that is. If that's an epic, we've got to have meaning for that. So they focus on a couple things. At least executive management said, you know, a common taxonomy matters. We do multinational development. We have to understand a word when we say it. And secondly, even if this was better than safe, like we could, in a vacuum could create a thing better than these people that are created their entire careers and the whole company around it, we couldn't scale it or support it. We would have branched ourselves and we would then recruit people to the bank X agile way of working as opposed to saying, no, let's, let's take one of the standard models. So I think the root of that is this, I think Deming's famous quote is that it's a disease of management and his actual quote at the time was it was a disease of Western management that our problems are different. So since they're different, we have to solve them ourselves. But he goes on to say, the problems are different to be certain, but the principles that underlie improving quality of product and service are universal in nature. So when you ask how you would avoid that spinning, or let's just say a poor application for us, that's the principles of safe, and there's only 10. And we focus on those, and there are things like work and process limits and small batch size. They're like organizing around value. They're taking an economic view. So if you look at those and say, that's the real underlying core, if we could agree on those, then what instantiation do you want? One that's commercially and readily available and largely free, I mean, at least from a published framework standpoint, or should we invent our own? But I think it's natural. I think every developer thinks they're methodologists and everybody thinks I can invent a framework better than everybody else's. You know, that gig is up. That's like saying, let's let's start a new search engine company now. Okay, you really need to move on and figure out what you could do this unique and different. And I think inventing your own scaled agile framework is not it. So if SAFE doesn't work for you for some reason, find another one. For goodness sakes, don't branch your entire company into a corner of the universe that they'll never be able to recover as methods evolve. Yeah, so I think two key points there, right, is that so based on I've only got a few hundred data points from the global 500, but the problems are not different. It actually amazes me how similar in terms of moving towards business agility how similar the problems are, whether you're whichever sector you're in, whether you're pure software or like financial services, mixed hardware and software, car company, federal agency, the problems are starkly similar, which is I think why, by the way, and I think Dean, you mentioned the word taxonomy. Although it's fun to invent your own frameworks and things, there isn't time. And I think people miss it appreciate two aspects of taxonomies, right? Successful taxonomies have driven scientific progress and technological progress. I'm stealing your line now. But, <laughs> but the amount of work to create this quality taxonomy, to gain community feedback on it, and then the key thing that you just mentioned, which I think is really hard to miss, is to evolve it over time to incorporate the best practices, right? I think I've said this before, that I think the, the intellectual property of the Scaled Agile Framework will be one of the most lasting contributions to our industry. It'll outlast tools, it'll outlast specific methodologies and practices, and as long as, as it continues being evolved, it'll incorporate new ones, right? Be that DevSecOps or the next trend. So can you just speak a bit about this journey? Because what impresses me is that the journey of getting to this point in the taxonomy? So taxonomy is critical. And uh, frankly, I underappreciated it. I mean, I understood it kind of intuitively, but not necessarily scientifically. If you can't tell a cat from a horse, what do you do when you call a vet? You know, it's just ridiculous. Taxonomy is the basis of science. Science moves forward by saying that's a wood door or it isn't behind you rather than, than a molded door or a, or a plastic door. 
So when we started down this path, I was forced because I was trying to make this one image. The original big picture I drew when I had a rolling wave of 25 PMO people in 45 minute slots over a full day at, at one of the world's largest enterprises. You could probably guess where that was. I said, I'm not going there and teach these people scrum. They don't care. I need to show them the after case. So I said, in the after case, the teams are aligned around a common cadence and there's this lightweight governance, this architectural runway, et cetera. And then they got it because they knew how they work now and they knew they weren't getting the job done, but they couldn't just say, that doesn't work, let's try a wild experiment. So when I showed them the after case, I said, that's the way you would look. And that won, so that was the original big picture. Wait, that was the, that's when you drew the first big picture? Exactly, I drew it on a whiteboard. And then as the PMO people walked through it, I continued to elaborate it and said, okay, here's the governance portion of that, or here's the portfolio piece. And then they understood the future case, future state. Then we had a dialogue. Otherwise, if your dog doesn't hunt, PMOs suck, requirements documents are terrible, you don't get it, you should really be agile. Well, give me a break. Really, I can tell these people they don't know how to ship whatever these things they are. Well, I can't, but I can show them the future case. In that future case, you have to label these things. So I made myself a simple rule. There's never going to be more than an 8 by 11 sheet. If I can't express it in PowerPoint, it's too complicated. And then it says, okay, I have to have a label for the icons. And we struggled mightily with some of them. In a large enterprise, does the product owner own the product via Scrum? No, they contribute a really valuable piece. Is a product owner a perfect term there? No. Well, am I gonna fight gravity and try to retrain the world or go to battle with a Scrum Alliance over, I know one large company Bender actually looked at Scrum Master and said, well, number one, you're not a master just because you took a course. And they called it iteration manager. Okay. Well, that's probably okay. But what is the point of that? Why fight gravity and this universal trend to at least have some common definitions around some things? And then we got in places like the thing above a story it was an epic. There wasn't enough surface area there. I've been a frustrated product manager my whole life. It's features and benefits. So the thing above a story needed to be features. Well, I didn't really have to invent that. That was a term that was there for the taking. Then Epic, we had to define it differently because even though that was an agile term, it was too close to story. It was still too small of thinking. So one by one, we argue about these terms. We ha we're having a discussion right now whether a team that is not co-located is dispersed or distributed. We care because we're, we're going to say how to work with an X team. Is that dispersed or distributed? We can't say, if, you know, be you dispersed or distributed. One of our teammates worked with the team for a while, and it didn't work out for a number of reasons. But in his exit interview, he said, those framework guys, they sit in a room and they argue about words all day. That's kind of true. <laughs> because we pick a term and we put value to it. Now, a value stream for us may or may not be what somebody else calls it. A product manager may or may not be a CPO, a chief product owner. It doesn't matter. What matters is that we provide consistent definitions and we associate the right responsibilities with those people. So I'm not a fan of program increment. Am I stuck with it forever? Probably not. But in any case, we know what it is and we can say that's a planning interval. Well, why didn't you call it a planning interval? I guess we weren't smart enough seven years ago to call it a planning interval. Well, maybe we'll get there, maybe we won't. But the point of the matter is these words have to have meaning and they have to have definitions that people are going to apply, and especially when it comes to the responsibilities of people doing the work. You know, I'm working on another project right now just to clarify certain responsibilities in certain areas. Yeah, there's shared responsibility. There's also shared responsibilities to the point where everybody is responsible, therefore nobody is. 
So the safe taxonomy includes events and artifacts and roles. And the roles have responsibilities. And you might argue the title of the role, but hardly anybody argues the responsibilities of a product manager when you read them. You say somebody needs to do that, no matter how good my Agile or DevOps teams are. Yeah, and I think my teams, for example, and it's really interesting that you say the program increment, right? Because we use safe terminology, but people didn't like that term, program increment. We don't have programs. We're not the size of Microsoft. They have programs. We don't, and so on. It's like, it doesn't matter. It's a common terminology. Our job is not reinventing these terminologies. Right. A whole bunch of, I think, some of the, the smartest methodologies in our industries agonize over regularly. I didn't realize we were still agonizing on this one. <laughs> That's fascinating. Uh, honestly, I've never liked it, but it's... <laughs> It's a problem. Yeah. But the label is a problem. What it is is not a problem. Exactly. What it is is not a problem. Yeah. And it's. We should forward over time. Yeah. And I think my appreciation from this comes from just comes from the programming languages side. When you're designing programming languages like we were, we would agonize over the keywords, right? This is how people are going to express their ideas and code for years to come. We can never change them because you have to be back with. What's a domain, yeah, domain model? model. Exactly. The, exactly. The, the subject word. Yep. So we would come up with the best thing that we could, but we put such care and thought into the taxonomy. And there were endless discussions of people iterating on those things. And so I think, again, the ability to tap into all of that and the fact that, that it is evolving is, is just so critical because that common terminology means that you can stop worrying about that, stop having discussions. And I, you know, you and I have seen this over and over where during a meeting where people are supposed to be discussing the value they're delivering, they get caught up in terminology discussions and what's an epic. And I, I just, I cannot stand that what's an, what's an epic discussion when, when I see customers doing it, right? We've gotten over it long ago. So I think it's, it's just about getting out of your way and moving ahead. This was reinforced by me some years ago where we were working at a big German bank and we were meeting with them and a bunch of other executives offsite. And we were just approaching the, the localization issue. And we talked about the potential to localize safe and we've not done that. The VP stood up and says, whatever you do, do not translate these iconic terms into other languages because they will lose all their meaning. Lean portfolio management has no obvious translation in Mandarin. And whatever you put into it is going to create the equivalent baggage that we have with the word program increment. So make that stay. Now, if you want to translate the definition of that, or in this case of Japanese, use katakana to describe how to pronounce that, great. But do not give me a different word for an epic in Vietnam, China, India, and Germany. It's going to be an epic. That's what we're going to call it. So we got a stern lecture about how valuable it was for them to be able to be on the phone with our teams in Vietnam saying, what's the status of these stories? Or what are the features in the backlog? What do you say? What are the things in the backlog that are in some cases are features and maybe they're not? Maybe they're stories. Maybe they're initiatives. You've got to have a way to approach the problem to be able to communicate. If you get that out of the way, now we can figure out what the feature should be, not what to call it. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that is a fascinating point, right? It's actually similar to programming languages. You don't internationalize them. Those words like class or method, they, they happen to be pretty important in a universal way. And it took that much effort. Remember your first so, efforts at OO where you're doing, you had to do the domain model? Yeah. All of a sudden, it's like, what kind of report is that? <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's the same thing. It's just a basic for communication across people that need to work together to a common purpose. Yeah. 
so Dean, the terminology and the goal of this is to get people to think in terms of outcomes and delivering value and, and business agility. And so I'll just tell you a quick story. I hope this one's not too contentious, but I'm going to just go straight to the the times that I hear someone blaming SAFE for the rollout not being successful, their transformation not being successful. So, and th this one's somewhat representative. So what happens is they start the rollout and I'm being told that it looks good, it's working, they're getting some training and so on. And then the practices start, people change nothing. All they're doing is call it painting it safe and they start using some of the ceremonies, of course, yep. any agile deployment evolves into this, but let's just blame safe. They start blaming the ceremonies for a lack of focus on results. And of course, they're still arguing about the ceremonies as they're doing this. And so this, this executive at a, at a large financial services company saying, he is saying to me that it's not working. I asked him, I said, well, is safe not working? Why is safe not working? I see it working <laughs> frequently. I see it not working sometimes. And it sounds like it could be similar reasons. It works for us. Why is it not working for you? And so he says, well, because I think you and Dean think that people understand are too outcome oriented. And I think what we've got people here is that they've taken the very surface of it. And then of course he says, well, there's nothing actually wrong with safe. The concepts are great, but the problems are people. They've taken the surface concepts of it. They're celebrating the ceremonies. They're only measuring the ceremonies and they haven't actually made anything more agile in the process. So how, how do you think about this? How do you again, get that kind of mindset over to the true safe to business agility mindset? Well, it's a common problem, I think, with frameworks in general, right? I mean, I was involved in a rollout of Scrum for, I don't remember how many people, a thousand or so, and it was, it just simply wasn't successful. So that enterprise says, well, Scrum doesn't really work. Well, we didn't change Scrum, right? <laughs> I mean, it, it's Scrum is Scrum and it freaking works for sure. They couldn't apply it. That was really a different issue. You can do that with anything. You could do waterfall badly, waterfall well. You could pick any branded thing, rub any of the other frameworks in our world and do them badly. I agree. We call it kind of painting the place safe. And I think especially the danger as you get into the middle market and the later adopters who need to go agile fast, they really need to make progress fast. So they start calling things safe and hoping for the best. Well, there's a few things that I think can correct that. Number one, if you focus on the principles, you're going to get better. Inspect and adapt, right? You've got to make sure that you do that corrective action loop. In addition, we do have some really outcome-oriented measures associated with SAFE. There's portfolio metrics. There's agile release train metrics as well. And that includes one that you might think isn't really an outcome. It's called predictability. Well, guess what? If your teams and arts aren't predictable, you're going to have a heck of a time achieving any other objective. So I would focus on the outcome metrics, right? Not the outputs and the processes. In addition, and it's maybe a minor thing, maybe it isn't. We've never had what I consider to be a great treatment of KPIs at the value stream level. We've actually added that since 5.0 was launched. So a couple things to look at. I would look at the Azure portfolio metrics and I would look at the KPIs and say, if we measure our business that way, those are clearly outcomes, not outputs and not process steps. Now, having said that, just like Scrum, you don't go into a lot of theory as to why you do a daily stand-up. You just do it. And those ceremonies have value. So I wouldn't say that measuring whether or not you got PI planning done on time is a terrible thing. It's just an intermediate step. And you have to get the muscle memory for that. So PI planning is a good example. Not easy to do that with 100 and 150 people. First couple of times, mm -hmm. It's 50 or 60% process and 30% content. 
The fourth time, it's like, well, the process is no longer concerned. The taxonomy is out of the way. It's now just reasoning about the system that we're, that we're being built. So the ceremonies are important. And inspected adapt, that's an important thing. The system demo, that's critical. But how do you measure the effectivity of a system demo? By the number of people that came? No, that's just a data point that should help eliminate some of the other reporting you have to do. In that regard, I, I have a, another recent experience that I think really highlights a challenge, which is that hybrid models are probably the worst of all. So when you start doing things like SAFE and you say we have a system demo and we have PI planning and the teams do backlog refinement, if you don't throw away and stop doing all the other things you were doing to address the problem, you double up and you can end up with more meeting overhead than you had before. But if you do an analysis, and one of our one of our safe fellows did in one enterprise, he counted the meeting, the time spent in meetings and the number of meetings before safe and after, and made the case through objective evidence that their meeting time had dropped by about half, if I remember right. And that's because they threw away the stuff they didn't need to do. I mean, a system demo for all practical purposes is 80-20 of the reporting problem. How are we doing on GDPR? Come to the demo and ask that question. How are we doing on this getting ready to launch a satellite? Come to the demo and ask the question. And if the demos are too frequent, come to the PI boundary because you're going to see a demo there. So if we, if we focus on objective evidence of the system, not the ceremonies, we focus on the principles and we focus on you know, KPI-like outcome measures, I think you can get past that. Again, people want really easy answers to really hard problems. I ran into this maybe only 24 months ago a scrum team of 30 requirements analysts. <laughs> Sorry, took a moment for that to sink in. Never heard that before. Okay. You, I know this is a podcast, so you can't see Nick shaking his head. <laughs> this was 10 o'clock in the morning of what was to be a two-day consulting engagement. And I'm thinking maybe I can catch a one o'clock flight. I can't <laughs> I believe it. And this was promoted by their agile working group. So it's easy to be wrong. It's not easy to be right. You have to have the right training to be right. You have to have the mindset. We reinforce, as you've seen, the Agile Manifesto. Yes, yeah, 19 years old, it's still really good. We reinforce the principles of flow. That's a new, a new decade of thinking. We reinforce systems thinking. We reinforce decentralized decision-making. Those are the things that are truly universal in nature and can get you out of the just painting it safe box. But I agree it's a risk. Can people fail to safe? You bet. Can they fail with any method or practice? Of course you can. That's really, but it's a poor workman that blames their tools. It was a poor company that blames Scrum. I think it's a poor company that blames Safe because they're not getting the outputs, the outcomes they need. Yeah, exactly. And I think you, you hit on all the, if I look for the success patterns where it's, they're getting rapid time to value, I think you hit on all three of the most common ones I see, right? Is not doubling up. So not getting rid of your EVM and PRDs and project management. If you keep both. Yeah, and reporting, exactly. Those, th this is meant to make things go away. If you keep both, of course your teams and, and your people will react, right? That doubling up is a, is a disaster. And this is, I think, you just you said it, Dean, in a way I haven't heard before, is from your rollout, you should be able to reduce the meeting time, reduce the ceremony, reduce the reporting. The PI planning, you know, one of the nice things about having some experience at this, like we both have, is we remember JAD, right? Joint Application Development where yep. every month or so we'd get everybody together and we would do the requirements and the design and the implementation and demos that we didn't mostly do demos and mostly design sessions. Well, PI planning session is not just planning. It's just really hard to describe what happens there. It's 
requirements, analysis, communication, design, architectural, program planning, outcome measures, goal setting, et cetera. It's basically everybody that's involved in building the system meets together for a day and a half to two days to figure out what to do next. Is that an overhead ceremony? I think it's requirements and design and planning and governance all rolled into one. And they're doing that. That work has to be done anyway. The question is how many separate breakout meetings it takes to interrupt your schedule to do what could be routine. The system demo is a good focus. Every two weeks, there's a system demo. Try to do that without DevOps. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. You're demoing from people's laptops. So if you do the demo, if you do inspect and adapt at the end of every, every increment, you're going to get better. And if you don't, you're not. Exactly. So, Dean, on the last question, on I think you you hit on this one. A lot of people are asking about this. It's how to think about DevOps and safe, right? I think the industry has realized how important DevOps is. It's it's everywhere, but alone, you're not actually getting to its principles, yeah. right? If you're only solving the Dev to Ops problem, the CI/CD pipeline, Absolutely. you're not actually getting to flow and feedback and continued learning. So, thoughts? So, so, the label DevOps isn't that old. I don't know. Maybe maybe I don't remember if it was the Phoenix Project that pioneered that or not. DevOps is about primarily code to deploy. And if you can't do code to deploy, how agile are you? Well, the answer is not agile at all. What I started seeing in the industry is people saying, well, we're going to do scaled agile, we're going to do DevOps. Well, kind of duh. What you're really doing is simplifying the value stream and DevOps is front and center. And if you think about on a slightly higher level view, how do you do innovative you know, product management work and design thinking if you can't get feedback? And I don't want just feedback from a storyboard or a wireframe. I would like to actually deploy that thing in some portion of the market. And in the in the Unicorn Project, you saw that with you know the A/B testing of, of large-scale data systems. Well, if you don't have DevOps, you actually can't get feedback. So you're going to have a fun time doing all your innovation design thinking, create some ideas, create a big batch of stuff, hit a firewall where you can't deploy and get feedback. But if you can get the DevOps pipeline smooth and lower the transaction cost of deploy, then you can run smaller batches through deploy and the economics start to work. But if the testing and overhead of testing a deployed system is so high you can't afford a smaller batch, the economics are against you and that forces you into really big batches of requirements. So DevOps is just integral to the value stream. It's integral to what we do. I mean, for me, it goes back to XP. So DevOps reinforces continuous integration. Well, XP didn't invent continuous integration, but it demanded it. Well, that's just a piece of DevOps, right? And maybe, yeah, maybe I was integrating into a, a dev branch and not into ops, but it was the same sentiment, which is we can't get a small, if we can't get feed, fast feedback from a small batch, we don't know what we're doing. DevOps, I think, is, is, a, is a brilliant movement. We're lucky to have it because it says creating a big batch of largely undelivered agile code is no more fun, maybe even more painful than creating a big batch of waterfall code. So DevOps is actually integral to the value stream. It's integral to save. It's been there one way or another forever. Calling out specifically, I don't think we did that until version four. I don't really remember exactly when we when we said we got to put some surface area on that to make people people understand that the continuous delivery pipeline is part of safe and it's what people have to do to shorten the time not from code to deploy but from idea to deploy and feedback. Exactly, and I think you know my introduction to theory of constraints was actually from Ken Beck's extreme programming. Right, he he had an amazing chapter on that, and the whole idea was you optimize, you know, you invest in the constraint. Maybe your constraint is code commit to code deploy. 
if you don't have a bigger view, you don't know that. And chances are, as we've seen oftentimes, as Gene and others have pointed out, it could be the architecture, the software architecture. It could be the work intake. It could be upstream bottlenecks, upstream of code commit and code deploy. So I think, again, having that operating model that actually allows you to discover that, measuring it, measuring these, these flow metrics and these KPIs and outcome metrics while you're putting in place this new process that makes all, all of that much easier and gives your organization the right structure and taxonomy is the very clear path forward. So, If people look at SAFE and go, there's a lot of stuff there, I ask the question, what would you take out? Well, we probably don't need that customer centricity thing. Well, maybe we don't need DevOps. Oh, maybe we don't need maybe we don't need Kanban for flow. Maybe we don't need a demo. Maybe we don't need inspecting that. Maybe we don't need lean portfolio. But you kind of need all that stuff. So yeah, it's apology and, a, and an immediate retraction. You got to do that stuff if you really want to compete with the companies that are good at digital. You got to do it all. I wish it was easier. Then again, I guess maybe you and I wouldn't have so much fun in our careers. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think we both thrive on making complexity easier, but it, it doesn't get fundamentally, this is fundamental complexity in terms of what it takes to build software at scale. And if you said, I don't think we're going to, we're going to invent a programming language to solve this problem. And maybe Grady and others think that maybe AI will make this programming obsolete, but I'm living in a different world where there's 20, 30, 40 million lines of legacy code. And we've got to do new value through that stuff fast. And that requires, that requires some pretty serious thinking and it requires a framework that's got some mass. Yeah, no, I think, you know, you might have another another role here of people doing models for ML in safe yeah. 10.0 or, or 8.0. But for now, this is a, around the way people work and the way they deliver value. So I think AI is not making this go away anytime soon. All right, Dean, thank you so, so much. I learned lots of things whenever I talk to you, but I think I learned more on this discussion than ever. So, so And the reverse is also true. I enjoy our learning together and challenging is what we do. That's what makes you grow. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. And until next time, Dean, where can people find you online? Yep. LinkedIn. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. See you later. A huge thank you to Dean for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me and my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags one or project to product Dean's Twitter handle is Dean Leffingwell, and he's got some amazing content that he's posting regularly as well. If you want to learn more about Flowmetrics and SAFE, go to flowframework.org. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.